I learned to braid my back so it would not catch on every twig, and how to tie my skirts at the knee to keep the burrs off. I learned to recognize the different blooming vines and gaudy roses, to spot the shining dragonflies and coiling snakes. I climbed the peaks where the cypresses speared black into the sky, then clambered down to the orchards and vineyards where purple grapes grew thick as coral. I walked the hills, the buzzing meadows of thyme and lilac, and set my footprints across the yellow beaches. I searched out every cove and grotto, found the gentle bays, the harbor safe for ships. I heard the wolves howl and the frogs cry from their mud. I stroked the glossy brown scorpions who braved me with their tails. Their poison was barely a pinch. I was drunk, as the wine and nectar in my father's halls had never made me. No wonder I have been so slow, I thought. All this while I have been a weaver without wool, a ship without the sea. Yet now look where I sail. At night, I went home to my house. I did not mind its shadows anymore, for they meant my father's gaze was gone from the sky, and the hours were my own. I did not mind the emptiness either. For a thousand years, I had tried to fill the space between myself and my family. Filling the rooms of my house was easy by comparison. I burned cedar in the fireplace, and its dark smoke kept me company. I sang, which had never been allowed before, since my mother said I had the voice of a drowning gull. And when I did get lonely, when I found myself yearning for my brother, or Glaucus as he had been, then there was always the forest. The lizards darted along the branches, the birds flashed their wings. The flowers, when they saw me, seemed to press forward like eager puppies, leaping and clamoring for my touch. I felt almost shy of them, but day by day I grew bolder, and at last I knelt in the damp earth before a clump of hellebore. The delicate blooms fluttered on their stalks. I did not need a knife to cut them, only the edge of my nail, which grew sticky with flecks of sap. I put the flowers in a basket covered with cloth, and only uncovered them when I was home again, my shutters firmly closed. I did not think anyone would try to stop me, but I did not intend to tempt them to it. I looked at the blossoms lying on my table. They seemed shrunken, etiolated. I did not have the first idea of what I should do to them. Chop, boil, roast. There had been oil in my brother's ointment, but I did not know what kind. Would olive from the kitchen work? Surely not. It must be something fantastical, like seed oil pressed from the fruits of the Hesperides. But I could not get that. I rolled a stalk beneath my finger. It turned over, limp as a drowned worm. Well, I said to myself, do not just stand there like a stone. Try something. Boil them. Why not? I had a little pride, as I have said, and that was good. More would have been fatal. Let me say what sorcery is not. It is not divine power which comes with a thought and a blink. It must be made and worked, planned and searched out, dug up, dried, chopped and ground, cooked, spoken over and sung. Even after all that, it can fail, as gods do not. If my herbs are not fresh enough, if my attention falters, if my will is weak, the drafts go stale and rancid in my hands. By rights, I should never have come to witchcraft. Gods hate all toil, tis their nature. The closest we come is weaving or smithing, but these things are skills, 
and there is no drudgery to them since all the parts that might be unpleasant are taken away with power. The wool is dyed not with stinking vats and stirring spoons, but with a snap. There is no tedious mining. The oars leap willingly from the mountain. No fingers are ever chafed, no muscles strained. Witchcraft is nothing but such drudgery. Each herb must be found in its den, harvested at its time, grubbed up from the dirt, culled and stripped, washed and prepared. It must be handled this way, then that, to find out where its power lies. Day upon patient day. You must throw out your errors and begin again. So why did I not mind? Why did none of us mind? I cannot speak for my brothers and sister, but my answer is easy. For a hundred generations, I had walked the world drowsy and dull, idle and at my ease. I left no prints, I did no deeds. Even those who had loved me a little did not care to stay. Then I learned that I could bend the world to my will, as a bow is bent for an arrow. I would have done that toil a thousand times to keep such power in my hands. I thought, this is how Zeus felt when he first lifted the thunderbolt. At first, of course, all I brewed were mistakes. Drafts that did nothing, pastes that crumbled and lay dead on the table. I thought that if some rule was good, more was better. That ten herbs mixed were superior to five, that I could let my mind wander and the spell would not wander with it, that I could begin making one draft and halfway through decide to make another. I did not know even the simplest herb law that any mortal would learn at her mother's knee. That wart plants boiled make a sort of soap, that you burnt in the hearth sends up a choking smog, that poppies had sleep in their veins, and hellebore death, and yarrow could close over wounds. All these things had to be worked and learned through errors and trials, burnt fingers and fetid clouds that sent me running outside to cough in the garden. At least, I thought, in those early days, once I cast a spell, I would not have to learn it again. But even that was not true. However often I had used a herb before, each cutting had its own character. One rose would give up its secrets if it were ground, another must be pressed, a third steeped. Each spell was a mountain to be climbed anew. All I could carry with me from the last time was the knowledge that it could be done. I pressed on. If my childhood had given me anything, it was endurance. Little by little, I began to listen better, to the sap moving in the plants to the blood in my veins. I learned to understand my own intention, to prune and to add, to feel where the power gathered and speak the right words to draw it to its height. That was the moment I lived for, when it all came clear at last and the spell could sing with its pure note for me and me alone. I did not call dragons or summon serpents. My earliest charms were silly things, whatever came into my head. I started with an acorn, for I had some thought that if the object were green growing, nourished by water, my naiad blood might give me some help. For days, months, I rubbed that acorn with oils and salves, speaking words over it to make it sprout. I tried to mimic the sounds I had heard Aetes make when he had healed my face. I tried curses and prayers too. But through it all, the acorn kept its seed smugly within. I threw it out the window and got a new one, and crouched over that for another half an age. I tried the spell when I was angry, when I was calm, when I was happy, when I was half distracted. 
One day I told myself that I would rather have no powers than try that spell again. What did I want with an oak seedling anyway? The island was full of them. What I really wanted was a wild strawberry to slip sweetly down my irritable throat. And so I told that brown hull. It changed so fast, my thumb sank into its soft red body. I stared, and then I whooped with triumph, startling the birds outside from their trees. I brought a withered flower back to life. I banished flies from my house. I made the cherries blossom out of season and turned the fire vivid green. If Aetes had been there, he would have choked on his beard to see such kitchen tricks. Yet because I knew nothing, nothing was beneath me. My powers lapped upon themselves like waves. I found I had a knack for illusion, summoning shadow crumbs for the mice to creep after, making pale minnows leap from the waves beneath the cormorant's beak. I thought larger, a ferret to frighten off the moles, an owl to keep away the rabbits. I learned that the best time to harvest was beneath the moon, when dew and darkness concentrated sap. I learned what grew well in a garden and what must be left to its place in the woods. I caught snakes and learned how to milk their teeth. I could coax a drop of venom from the tail of a wasp. I healed a dying tree. I killed a poisonous vine with a touch. But Aetes had been right. My greatest gift was transformation, and that was always where my thoughts returned. I stood before a rose, and it became an iris. A draft poured onto the roots of an ash tree changed it into a holm oak. I turned all my firewood to cedar so that its scent would fill my halls each night. I caught a bee and made it into a toad, and a scorpion into a mouse. There I discovered at last the limits of my power. However potent the mixture, however well woven the spell, the toad kept trying to fly, and the mouse to sting. Transformation touched only bodies, not minds. I thought of Scylla then. Did her nymph self live still inside that six-headed monster? Or did plants grown from the blood of gods make the change a true one? I did not know. Into the air, I said, wherever you are, I hope you are finding your satisfaction. Which, of course, now I know she was. It was one day during that time that I found myself among the thickest breaks of the forest. I loved to walk the island, from its lowest shores to its highest haunts, seeking out the hidden mosses and ferns and vines, collecting their leaves for my charms. It was late afternoon, and my basket overflowed. I stepped around a bush, and the boar was there. I had known for some time that there were wild pigs on the island. I'd heard them squealing and crashing in the brush, and often I would find some rhododendron trampled or a stand of saplings rooted up. This was the first one I had seen. He was huge, even bigger than I had imagined a boar could be. His spine rose steep and black as the ridges of Mount Kynthos, and his shoulders were slashed with the thunderbolt scars of his fights. Only the bravest heroes face such creatures. And then they are armed with spears and dogs, archers and assistants, and usually half a dozen warriors besides. I had only my digging knife and my basket and not a single spell draft to hand. He stamped, and the white foam dripped from his mouth. He lowered his tusks and ground his jaws, his pig eyes said, I can break a hundred youths and send their bodies back to wailing mothers. I will tear your entrails and eat them for my lunch. I fixed my gaze on his. Try, I said. For a long moment, he stared at me. Then he turned. 
and twitched off through the brush. I tell you, for all my spells, that was the first time I truly felt myself a witch. At my hearth that night, I thought of those prancing goddesses who carry birds on their shoulders, or have some fawn always nuzzling their hands, tripping delicately at their heels. I would put them to shame, I thought. I climbed to the highest peaks and found a lonely track. Here a flower crushed. Here the dirt turned a little and some bark clawed off. I brewed a potion with crocus and yellow jasmine, iris and cypress root dug at the moon's full height. I sprinkled it, singing, I summon you. She came rippling through my door at the next dusk, her shoulder muscles hard as stones. She lay across my hearth and rasped my ankles with her tongue. During the day, she brought me rabbits and fish. At night, she licked honey from my fingers and slept upon my feet. Sometimes we would play, she stalking behind me, then leaping up to grapple me by the neck. I smelled the hot musk of her breath, felt the weight of her forepaws pressing on my shoulders. Look, I said, showing her the knife I had carried with me from my father's halls, the one stamped with a lion's face. What fool made this? They have never seen your like. She cracked her great brown mouth in a yawn. There was a bronze mirror in my bedroom, tall as the ceiling. When I passed it, I scarcely knew myself. My gaze seemed brighter, my face sharper, and there behind me paced my wild lion familiar. I could imagine what my cousins would say if they saw me, my feet dirty from working in the garden, my skirts knotted up around my knees, singing at the height of my frail voice. I wished that they would come. I wanted to see those goggle eyes of theirs as I walked among the dens of wolves, swam in the sea where the sharks fed. I could change a fish to a bird. I could wrestle with my lion, then lie across her belly, my hair loose around me. I wanted to hear them squeal and gasp, breath struck. Oh, she looked at me. Now I will be a frog. Had I truly feared such creatures? Had I really spent 10,000 years ducking like a mouse? I understood now Aiti's boldness, how he had stood before our father like a towering peak. When I did my magics, I felt that same span and heft. I tracked my father's burning chariot across the sky. Well, what do you have to say to me? You threw me to the crows, but it turns out I prefer them to you. No answer came and none from my Aunt Moon either. Those cowards. My skin was glowing, my teeth set. My lioness lashed her tail. Does no one have the courage? Will no one dare to face me? So you see, in my way, I was eager for what came. Chapter Eight It was sunset. My father's face already dipped beneath the trees. I was working in my garden, staking the leggy vines, planting rosemary and aconite. I was singing, too, some aimless air. The lion lay in the grass, her mouth bloodied from the wood grass she had flushed. I admit, the voice said, I am surprised to see you so plain after such boasting. A flower garden and braids. You might be any country girl. The young man was leaning against my house, watching me. His hair was loose and tousled, his face bright as a jewel. Though there was no light to catch them, his golden sandals gleamed. I knew who he was, of course I knew. 
The power shone from his face, unmistakable, keen as an unsheathed blade. An Olympian, the son of Zeus and his chosen messenger, that laughing gadfly of the gods, Hermes. I felt myself tremble, but I would not let him see it. Great gods smell fear like sharks smell blood, and they will devour you for it just the same. I stood. What did you expect? Oh, you know, a slim wand twirled idly in his fingers. Something more lurid, dragonish, a troop of dancing sphinxes, blood dripping from the sky. I was used to my thick-shouldered uncles with their white beards, not such perfect, careless beauty. When sculptors shape their stone, they shape it after him. Is that what they say of me? Of course. Zeus is sure you're brewing poisons against us all, you and your brother both. You know how he frets. He smiled, easy, conspiratorial, as if the anger of Zeus were only a light jest. So you come as Zeus's spy then? I prefer the word envoy. But no, in this matter, my father can do his own work. I'm here because my brother is angry with me. Your brother, I said. Yes, he said. I think you've heard of him? From his cloak, he drew a lyre, inlaid with gold and ivory, glowing like the dawn. I'm afraid I've stolen this, he said, and I need a place to shelter till the storm passes. I was hoping you might take pity upon me. Somehow, I don't think he'll look here. The hairs stood on the back of my neck. All who were wise feared the god Apollo's wrath, silent as sunlight, deadly as plague. I had the impulse to look over my shoulder to make sure he was not striding across the sky already, his gilded arrow pointed at my heart. But there was something in me that was sick of fear and awe, of gazing at the heavens and wondering what someone would allow me. Come in, I said, and led him through my door. I had grown up hearing the stories of Hermes's daring, how as an infant he had risen from his cradle and made off with Apollo's cattle how he had slain the monstrous guardian Argos after coaxing each of his thousand eyes to sleep, how he could pry secrets out of a stone and charm even rival gods to do his will. It was all of it true. He could draw you in as if he were winding up a thread. He could spin you out upon a conceit until you were choking with laughter. I had scarcely known true intelligence. I had spoken to Prometheus for only a moment. And in all the rest of Oceanus's halls, most of what passed as cleverness was only archness and spite. Hermes's mind was a thousand times sharper and more swift. It shone like light upon the waves, dazzling to blindness. That night, he entertained me with tale after tale of the great gods and their foolishness. Lecherous Zeus turning into a bull to lure a pretty maiden. Ares, god of war, bested by two giants who kept him crammed in a jar for a year. Hephaestus laying a trap for his wife, Aphrodite, hoisting her in a golden net still naked with her lover Ares for all the gods to see. On and on he went through the absurd vices, drunken brawls and petty slapping squabbles, all told in that same slippery, grinning voice. I felt myself flushed and dizzied, as if I had taken my own draughts. Will you not be punished for coming here and breaking my exile? He smiled. Father knows I do what I like. And anyway, I break nothing. It is only you who are confined. The rest of the world may come and go as we please. I was surprised. But I thought, is it not the greater punishment to force me to be alone? 
That depends on who visits you, doesn't it? But exile is exile. Zeus wanted you contained, and so you are. He didn't really think about it further. How do you know all this? I was there. Watching Zeus and Helios negotiate is always good entertainment. Like two volcanoes trying to decide if they should blow. He had fought in the Great War, I remembered. He had seen the sky burn and slain a giant whose head brushed the clouds. For all his lightness, I found I could imagine it. Tell me, I said, can you play that instrument or only steal it? He touched his fingers to the strings. The notes leapt out into the air, bright and silver sweet. He gathered them into a melody as effortlessly as if he were a god of music himself, so that the whole room seemed to live inside the sound. He looked up, the fire caught in his face. Do you sing? That was another thing about him. He made you want to spill your secrets. Only for myself, I said. My voice is not pleasing to others. I am told it sounds like a gull crying. Is that what they said? You are no gull. You sound like a mortal. The confusion must have been plain on my face, for he laughed. Most gods have voices of thunder and rocks. We must speak soft to human ears or they are broken to pieces. To us, mortals sound faint and thin. I remembered how gentle Glaucus's words had sounded when he had first spoken to me. I had taken it for a sign. It is not common, he said, but sometimes lesser nymphs are born with human voices. Such a one are you. Why did no one tell me? And how could it be? There is no mortal in me. I am Titan only. He shrugged. Who can ever explain how divine bloodlines work? As for why no one said, I suspect they didn't know. I spend more time with mortals than most gods and have grown accustomed to their sounds. To me, it is only another flavor, like season in food. But if you are ever among men, you'll notice it. They won't fear you as they fear the rest of us. In a minute, he had unraveled one of the great mysteries of my life. I raised my fingers to my throat as if I could touch the strangeness that lay there, a god with a mortal's voice. It was a shock, and yet there was a part of me that felt something almost like recognition. Play, I said. I began to sing, and the lyre followed my voice effortlessly, its timbre rising to sweeten my every phrase. When I finished... The flames were down to their coals and the moon veiled. Its eyes shone like dark gems held to light. They were black, one of the marks of deep-running power from the line of the oldest gods. For the first time, it struck me how strange it was that we divide Titans from Olympians, when of course Zeus was born from Titan parents, and Hermes's own grandfather was the Titan Atlas. The same blood runs in all our veins. Do you know the name of this island? I said. I would be a poor god of travelers if I did not know all the places in the world. And will you tell me? It is called Ayaya, he said. Ayaya, I tasted the sounds. They were soft, folding quietly as wings in the darkened air. You know it, he said. He was watching me closely. Of course, it is the place where my father threw his strength to Zeus and proved his loyalty. In the sky above this place, he vanished a titan giant, drenching the land with blood. It is quite a coincidence, he said, that your father would send you to this island among all the others. I could feel his power reaching for my secrets. 
In the old days, I would have rushed forth with a brimming cup of answers to give him all he wanted, but I was not the same as I had been. I owed him nothing. He would have of me only what I wanted to give. I rose and stood before him. I could feel my own eyes, yellow as river stones. Tell me, I said, how do you know that your father is not right about my poisons? How do you know I will not drug you where you sit? I do not. Yet you would dare to stay? I dare anything, he said. And that is how we came to be lovers. Hermes returned often in the years that followed, winging through the dusk. He brought delicacies of the gods, wine stolen from Zeus's own stores, the sweetest honey of Mount Hybla, where the bees drink only thyme and linden blossoms. Our conversations were pleasures and our couplings were the same. Will you bear my child? He asked me. I laughed at him. No, never and never. He was not hurt. He liked such sharpness, for there was nothing in him that had any blood you might spill. He asked only for curiosity's sake, because it was his nature to seek out answers, to press others for their weaknesses. He wanted to see how moonish I was over him. But all the stop in me was gone. I did not lie dreaming of him during the days. I did not speak his name into my pillow. He was no husband, scarcely even a friend. He was a poisoned snake, and I was another. And on such terms, we pleased ourselves. He gave me the news that I had missed. In his travels, he passed over every quarter of the world, picking up gossip as hems gather mud. He knew whose feasts Glaucus drank at. He knew how high the milk spurted in Colchis's fountains. He told me that Aetes was well, arrayed in a cloak of dyed leopard skin. He had taken a mortal to wife and had a babe in swaddling and another in the belly. Pasiphae still ruled Crete with her potions and had in the meantime whelped a ship's crew for her husband. Half a dozen heirs and daughters both. Perses kept to the east, raising the dead with pails of cream and blood. My mother had gotten over her tears and added mother of witches to her titles. Swanning with it among my aunts, we laughed over all of it, and when he left, I knew he told stories of me in turn. My dirt black fingernails, my musky lion, the pigs that had begun coming to my door, truffling for slops and a scratch on the back. And, of course, how I had thrown myself upon him as a blushing virgin. Well, I had not blushed, but all the rest was true enough. I questioned him further, where Aiaia was and how far it was from Egypt and Ethiopia and every other interesting place. I asked how my father's mood waxed, and what the names of my nieces and nephews were, and what empires flourished new in the world. He answered everything. But when I asked him how far to those flowers I had given Glaucus and Scylla, he laughed at me. <laughs> Do you think I will sharpen the lioness's claws for her? I made my voice as careless as I could. And what of that old titan Prometheus on his rock? How fares he? How do you think? He loses a liver a day. Still, I have never understood why helping mortals made Zeus so angry. Tell me, he said, who gives better offerings, a miserable man or a happy one? A happy one, of course. Wrong, he said. A happy man is too occupied with his life. He thinks he is beholden to no one. But make him shiver kill his wife, cripple his child, then you will hear from him. 
He will starve his family for a month to buy you a pure white yearling calf. If he can afford it, he will buy you a hundred. But surely, I said, you have to reward him eventually, otherwise he will stop offering. Oh, you would be surprised how long he will go on. But yes, in the end, it's best to give him something. Then he will be happy again, and you can start over. So this is how Olympians spend their days, thinking of ways to make men miserable. There's no cause for righteousness, he said. Your father is better at it than anyone. He would raise a whole village if he thought it would get him one more cow. How many times had I gloated inwardly over my father's heaping altars? I lifted my cup and drank so he would not see the flush on my cheeks. I suppose you might go and visit Prometheus, I said. You and your wings. Bring him something for comfort. And why should I do that? For novelty's sake, of course. The first good deed in your dissolute life. Aren't you curious what it would feel like? He laughed, but I did not press him further. He was still, always, an Olympian. Still Zeus's son. I was allowed license because it amused him, but I never knew when that amusement might end. You can teach a viper to eat from your hands, but you cannot take away how much it likes to bite. Spring passed into summer. One night, when Hermes and I were lingering over our wine, I finally asked him about Scylla herself. Ah, his eyes lit. I wondered when we would come to her. What would you know? Is she unhappy? But he would have laughed at such a mewling question, and he would have been right to. My witchcraft, the island, my lion, all of them sprang from her transformation. There was no honesty in regretting what had given me my life. I never heard what happened to her after she dived into the sea. Do you know where she is? Not far from here. Less than a day's journey by mortal ship. She has found a strait she likes. On one side is a whirlpool that sucks down ships and fish and whatever else passes. On the other, a cliff face with a cave for her to hide her head. Any ship which would avoid the whirlpool is driven right into her jaws, and so she feeds. Feeds, I said. Yes, she eats sailors. Six at a time, one for each mouth. And if the oars are too slow, she takes twelve. A few of them try to fight her, but you can imagine how that works out. You can hear them screaming for quite a ways. I was frozen to my chair. I had always imagined her swimming in the deeps, sucking cold flesh from squids. But no, Scylla had always wanted the light of day. She had always wanted to make others weep. And now she was a ravening monster filled with teeth and armored with immortality. Can no one stop her? Zeus could, or your father, if they wished to. But why would they? Monsters are a boon to gods. Imagine all the prayers. My throat had closed over. Those men she had eaten were sailors as Glaucus had been, ragged, desperate, worn thin with fear. All dead, all of them cold smoke, marked with my name. Hermes was watching me, his head cocked like a curious bird. He was waiting for my reaction. Would I be skimmed milk for crying? or a harpy with a heart of stone. There was nothing between. Anything else did not fit cleanly in the laughing tale he wanted to spin of it. I let my hand fall on my lion's head, felt her great hard skull beneath my fingers. She never slept when Hermes was there. 
Her eyes were lidded and watchful. Scylla was never satisfied with just one, I said. He smiled. A bitch with a cliff for a heart. I meant to tell you, he said. I heard a prophecy of you. I had it from an old CRS who had left her temple and was wandering the fields giving fortunes. I was used to the swift movements of his mind, and now I was grateful for them. And she just happened to be passing when she was speaking of me. Of course not. I gave her an embossed gold cup to tell me all she knew of Circe, daughter of Helios, witch of Aiaia. Well, she said that a man named Odysseus, born from my blood, will come one day to your island. And that's it, he said. That's the worst prophecy I've ever heard, I said. He sighed. I know. I think I lost my cup. I did not dream of him, as I said. I did not braid his name with mine. At night we lay together, and by midnight he was gone, and I could rise and step into my woods. Often my lion would pace beside me. It was the deepest pleasure, walking in the cool air, the damp leaves brushing our legs. Sometimes I would stop to harvest this flower or that. But the flower I truly wanted, I waited for. One month I let go by after Hermes and I first spoke, and then another. I did not want him watching. He had no place in this. It was mine. I did not bring a torch. My eyes shone in the dark better than any owl's. I walked through the shadowed trees, through the quiet orchards, the groves and brakes, across the sands and up the cliffs. The birds were still and the beasts. All the sounds were the air among the leaves and my own breath. And there it was, hidden in the leaf mold, beneath the ferns and mushrooms, a flower small as a fingernail, white as milk. The blood of that giant which my father had spilled in the sky. I plucked a stem out of the tangle, the roots clung hard a moment before yielding. They were black and thick, and smelled of metal and salt. The flower had no name that I knew, so I called it Moli, root, from the antique language of the gods. Oh, father, did you know the gift you gave me? For that flower, so delicate it could dissolve beneath your stepping foot, carried within it the unyielding power of apotrope, the turning aside of evil, curse breaker, ward and bulwark against ruin, worshipped like a god, for it was pure the only thing in all the world you could be certain would not turn against you. Day by day, the island bloomed. My garden climbed the walls of my house, breathed its scent through my windows. I left the shutters open by then. I did what I liked. If you had asked me, I would have said I was happy. Yet always I remembered. Cold smoke, marked with my name. Chapter Nine It was morning, the sun just over the trees, and I was in the garden cutting anemones for my table. The pigs snuffled at their slops. One of the boars grew fractious, shoving and grunting to air his authority. I caught his eye. Yesterday, I saw you blowing bubbles in the stream, and the day before, the spotted sow sent you off with a bitten ear and nothing more, so you may behave. He huffed at the dirt then flopped on his belly and subsided. Do you always talk to pigs when I am gone? 
Hermes stood in his traveling cloak, his broad-brimmed hat tilted over his eyes. I like to think of it the other way round, I said. What brings you out in the honest daylight? A ship is coming, he said. I thought you might want to know. I stood. Here? What ship? He smiled. He always liked seeing me at a loss. What will you give me if I tell you? Be gone, I said. I prefer you in the dark. He laughed and vanished. I made myself go about the morning as I usually would, in case Hermes watched. But I felt the tension in myself, the taut anticipation. I could not keep my eyes from flicking to the horizon. A ship, a ship with visitors that amused Hermes. Who? They came at mid-afternoon, resolving out of the bright mirror of the waves. The vessel was ten times the size of Glaucus's, and even at a distance I could see how fine it was, sleek and brightly painted, with a huge rearing prow piece. It cut through the sluggish air straight towards me, its oarsmen rowing steadily. As they approached, I felt that old, eager jump in my throat. They were mortals. The sailors dropped the anchor, and a single man leapt over the low side and splashed ashore. He followed the seam of beech and woods until he found a path, a small pig trail that wound upwards through the acanthus spears and laurel groves past the thornbush thicket. I lost sight of him then, but I knew where the trail led. I waited. He checked when he saw my lion, but only for a moment. With his shoulders straight and unbowed, he knelt to me in the clearing's grass. I realized I knew him. He was older, the skin of his face more lined, but it was the same man, his head still shaved, his eyes clear. Of all the mortals on the earth, there are only a few the gods will ever hear of. Consider the practicalities. By the time we learn their names, they're dead. They must be meteors indeed to catch our attention. The merely good? You are dust to us. Lady, he said, I am sorry to trouble you. You have not been troubled yet, I said. Please stand if you like. If he noticed my mortal voice, he gave no sign. He stood up. I would not say gracefully, for he was too solidly built for that, but easily, like a door swinging on a well-fitted hinge. His eyes met mine without flinching. He was used to gods, I thought, and witches too. What brings the famous Daedalus to my shores? I am honored you would know me. His voice was steady as a west wind, warm and constant. I come as a messenger from your sister. She is with child, and her time approaches. She asks that you attend her delivery. I eyed him. Are you certain you have come to the right place, messenger? There has never been love between my sister and me. She does not send to you for love, he said. The breeze blew, carrying the scent of linden flowers. At its back, the muddy stink of the pigs. I'm told my sister has bred half a dozen children, each more easily than the last. She cannot die in childbirth, and her infants thrive with the strength of her blood. So why does she need me? He spread his hands, deft-looking and thickened with muscle. Pardon, lady, I can say no more. But she bids me to tell you that if you do not help her, there is no one else who can. It is your art she wants, lady, yours alone. So Pacifier had heard of my powers and decided they could be of use to her. 
It was the first compliment I had had from her in my life. Your sister instructed me to say besides that she has permission from your father for you to go. Your exile is lifted for this. I frowned. This was all strange, very strange. What was important enough to make her go to my father? And if she needed more magic, why not summon Percy's? It seemed like some sort of trick, but I could not understand why my sister would bother. I was no threat to her. I could feel myself being tempted. I was curious, of course, but it was more than that. This was a chance to show her what I had become. Whatever trap she might set, she could not catch me in it, not anymore. What a relief to hear of my reprieve, I said. I cannot wait to be freed from my terrible prison. The terraced hills around us glowed with spring. He did not smile. There is one more thing. I am instructed to tell you that our path lies through the straits. What straits? But I saw the answer in his face. The dark stains under his eyes, the weary grief. Sickness rose in my throat. Where Scylla dwells, he nodded. She ordered you to come that way as well? She did. How many did you lose? Twelve, he said. We were not fast enough. How could I have forgotten who my sister was? She would never just ask a favor. Always she must have the whip to drive you to her will. I could see her bragging and laughing to mine us. Cersei's a fool for mortals, I hear. I hated her more than I ever had. It was all so cruelly done. I imagined stalking into my house, slamming the door on its great hinge. Too bad, pacify, you will have to find some other fool. But then six more men, or twelve, would die. I scoffed at myself. Who said they would live if I went? I knew no spells to ward off monsters. And Scylla would be enraged when she saw me. I would only bring more of her fury upon them. Daedalus was watching me. His face shadowed. Far beyond his shoulder, my father's chariot was slipping into the sea. In their dusty palace rooms, astronomers even now were tracking its sunset glory, hoping their calculations would hold. Their bony knees trembled, thinking of the headman's axe. I gathered up my clothes, my bag of simples. I closed the door behind me. There was nothing else to do. The lion could take care of herself. I am ready, I said. The ship's style was new to me, trim and low in the water. Its hull was beautifully painted with rolling waves and curving dolphins, and by the stern an octopus stretched its snaky arms. As the captain hauled at the anchor, I walked up to the prow to examine the figurehead I had seen. It was a young girl in a dancing dress. Her face bore a look of happy surprise, eyes wide, lips just parting, her hair loose over her shoulders. Her small hands were clasped to her chest, and she was poised on her toes as if music were about to start. Each detail of it, the curls of her hair, the folds of cloth, was so vivid that I thought at any moment she truly would step into the air. Yet that was not even the real miracle. The work showed, I cannot say how, a glimpse of the girl's self, the searching cleverness in her gaze, the determined grace of her brow, her excitement and innocence, easy and green as grass. I did not have to ask whose hands had shaped it. A wonder of the mortal world my brother had called Daedalus. But this 
was a wonder in any world. I pored over its pleasures, finding a new one every moment. The small dimple in her chin, the knob of her ankle, coltish with youth. A marvel it was, but also a message. I had been raised at my father's feet and knew a boast of power when I saw it. Another king, if he had such a treasure, would keep it under guard in his most fortified hall. Minus and Pacify had set it on a ship, exposed it to brine and sun, to pirates and sea rack and monsters, as if to say, this is a trifle. We have a thousand more, and better yet, the man who makes them. The drumbeat drew my attention away. The sailors had taken their benches, and I felt the first judders of motion. The harbor waters began to slide past us. My island dwindled behind. I turned my eye to the men filling the deck around me. There were thirty-eight in all. At the stern, five guards paced in capes and golden armor. Their noses were lumpen, twisted from too many breakings. I remembered Aetes sneering at them. Minos's thugs, dressed up like princes. The rowers were the pick of Nossus's mighty navy. So large, the oars looked dainty in their hands. Around them, the other sailors moved swiftly, raising a canopy to keep off the sun. At Minos and Pacifier's wedding, the huddle of mortals I had glimpsed seemed distant and blurred, as alike as leaves on a tree. But here, beneath the sky, each face was relentlessly distinct. This one was thick, this one was smooth, this one bearded with a hooked nose and narrow chin. There were scars and calluses and scrapes, age lines and cowlicks of hair. One had draped a wet cloth over his neck against the heat. Another wore a bracelet made by childish hands, and a third had a head shaped like a bullfinch's. It made me dizzy to realize that this was but a fraction of a fraction of all the men the world had bred. How could such variation endure, such endless iteration of minds and faces? Did the earth not go mad? May I bring you a seat, Daedalus said. I turned, glad for the respite of his single face. Daedalus could not have been called handsome, but his features had a pleasing sturdiness. I prefer to stand, I said. I gestured to the prow piece. She is beautiful. He inclined his head, a man used to such compliments. Thank you. Tell me something. Why does my sister have you under watch? When we had stepped on board the largest guard, the leader had roughly searched him. Ah, he smiled slightly. Minus and Pacify fear that I do not fully appreciate their hospitality. I remember Aiti saying, Pacify has him trapped. Surely you might have escaped them on the way. I might escape them often, but Pacify has something of mine I will not leave. I waited for more, but it did not come. His hands rested on the rail. The knuckles were battered, the fingers hatched with white nicks of scars, as though he had plunged them into broken wood or shards of glass. In the straits, I said. You saw Scylla? Not clearly. The cliff was hidden in spray and fog, and she moved too quickly, six heads striking twice with teeth as long as a leg. I had seen the stains on the deck. They had been scrubbed, yet the blood had soaked deep. All that was left of twelve lives. My stomach twisted with guilt, as Pacifier had meant it to. You should know I was the one who did it, I said. 
the one who made Scylla what she is. That is why I am exiled, and why my sister had you take this route. I watched his face for surprise or disgust, even terror, but he only nodded, she told me. Of course she had. She was a poisoner at heart. She wanted to be sure I came as villain, not savior. Except this time it was nothing but the truth. There is something I do not understand, I said. For all my sister's cruelty, she is not often foolish. Why would she risk you on this errand? I earned my place here myself. I am forbidden to say more, but when we arrive in Crete, I think you will understand. He hesitated. Do you know if there is anything we can do against her? Scylla. Above us, the sun burned away the last shreds of cloud. The men panted even under the canopy. I don't know, I said. I will try. We stood in silence beside that leaping girl as the sea fell away. That night we camped on the shore of a flourishing green land. Around their fires the men were tense and quiet, muffled by dread. I could hear their whispers, the wine sloshing as they passed it. No man wanted to lie awake imagining tomorrow. Daedalus had marked out a small space for me with a bedroll, but I left it. I could not bear to be hemmed in by all those breathing, anxious bodies. It was strange to tread upon earth other than my own. Where I expected a grove, there came a deer thicket. Where I thought there would be pigs, a badger showed its teeth. The terrain was flatter than my island, the forests low, the flowers in different combinations. I saw a bitter almond tree, a flowered cherry. My fingers itched to harvest their fat power. I bent and plucked a poppy just to hold its color in my hand. I could feel the throb of its black seeds. Come, make us into magic. I did not obey. I was thinking of Scylla, trying to piece together an image from everything I had heard of her. Six mouths, six heads, twelve dangling feet. But the more I tried, the more it slipped away. Instead, I saw her face as it had been in our halls, round and laughing. The curve of her wrist had been like a swan's neck. Her chin would tilt delicately to whisper some morsel of gossip in my sister's ear. Beside them, my brother Percy's had sat smirking. He used to toy with Scylla's hair, winding it around his finger. She would turn and slap his shoulder, and the sound would echo across the hall. They both laughed, for they loved to be at the center always. And I remembered wondering why my sister did not mind such displays. For she allowed none near Percy's but herself. Yet she only watched and smiled. I thought I had passed those years in my father's halls sightless as a mole. But now more details came back to me. The green robes Silly used to wear at special feasts. Her silver sandals with lapis lazuli on the strap. There was a gold pin with a cat at its end that kept her hair up from her neck. She had it from... Thebes, I thought. Thebes of Egypt, some admirer there, some beast-headed god. What had happened to that bauble? Was it still lying on the grass beside the water with her discarded clothes? I had come to a small rise, crowded with black poplars. I walked among their furrowed trunks. One of them had been struck recently by lightning, and the bowl bore a charred, oozing wound. I put my finger to the burnt sap. I could feel its force and was sorry I had not brought an extra bottle to gather it. It made me think of Daedalus, that upright man with fire in his bones. What was the thing he could not leave behind? 
His face, when he had spoken of it, had been careful. His words placed as if they were tiles in a fountain. It must be a lover, I thought. Some pretty handmaid of the palace, or else some handsome groom. My sister could smell such intrigues a year away. Perhaps she had even ordered them to his bed as the hook to catch the fish. But as I tried to picture their faces, I realized I did not believe in them. Daedalus did not seem like a man newly heartstruck, nor an old lover with a wife of many years molded to his side. I could not imagine him in a pair, only singular and alone. Gold, then, an invention he had made? I thought, if I can keep him alive tomorrow, perhaps I will find out. The moon was passing overhead and the night with it. Daedalus's voice spoke again in my ears. Her teeth are long as a leg. Cold fear ran through me. What had I been thinking? That I could stand against such a creature? Daedalus's throat would be ripped open, my own flesh snatched up in her mouths. What would I become after she was finished with me? Ash, smoke, immortal bones dragging across the bottom of the sea? My feet had found the shore. I walked it, cool and gray. I listened to the murmur of the waves, the cries of the night birds. But if I am honest, I was listening for more than that. The quick rush through the air that I had come to know. Each second I hoped Hermes would land poised before me, laughing, goading. So, which of Iaia, what will you do tomorrow? I thought of begging him for help, the sand beneath my knees, my palms upstretched. Or perhaps I would knock him down to the earth and please him that way, for he loved most of all to be surprised. I could hear the tale he would tell later. She was so desperate, she was on me like a cat. He should lie with my sister, I thought. They would like each other. It struck me for the first time that perhaps he had. Perhaps they lay together often and laughed at my dullness. Perhaps all this had been his idea, and that was why he had come this morning, to taunt me and gloat. My mind played over our conversation, sifting it for meaning. See how quickly he made one a fool. That was what he desired most of all, to drive others into doubt, keep them wondering and fretting, stumbling behind his dancing feet. I spoke out to the darkness, to any silent wings that hovered there. I do not care if you lie with her. Have Percy's too, he is the handsomer. You will never be such as I am jealous for. Perhaps he was listening, perhaps he was not. It did not matter, he would not come. It was the better jest to see what extremes I would try, to see how I would curse and flounder. My father would not help me either. Aetes might, if only to feel the flex of his power, but he was a world away. I could no more reach him than I could fly into the air. I was even more desolate than my sister, I thought. I came for her, but there was no one who would come for me. The thought was steadying. After all, I had been alone my whole life. Aetes, Glaucus, these were only pauses in the long stretch of my solitude. Kneeling, I dug my fingers into the sand. I felt the rub of grains beneath my nails. A memory drifted through me, my father speaking our old hopeless law to Glaucus. No god may undo what another has done, but I was the one who had done it. The moon passed over us, the waves pressed their cold mouths to my feet. Elecampane, I thought, ash and olive and silver fir, henbane with burnt cornel bark, and at the base of all, moly. 
Moly, to break a curse, to ward off that evil thought of mine that had changed her in the first place. I brushed away the sand and stood, my bag of simples hanging from my shoulder. As I walked, the bottles rang softly like goats shaking their bells. The smells wafted around me, familiar as my own skin, earth and clinging roots, salt and iron blood. The next morning, the men were gray and silent. One oiled the oarlocks to keep them from squeaking, another scrubbed at the stained deck, his face red, though whether from sun or grief I could not tell. In the stern, a third with a black beard was praying and pouring wine onto the waves. None looked at me. I was Pacifier's sister after all, and they had long since given up any thought of help from her. But I could feel their tension pressing thickly into the air, the choking terror rising in them moment by moment. Death was coming. Do not think of it, I told myself. If you hold firm, none will die today. The guard captain had yellow eyes set in a swollen face. His name was Polydemus, and he was large. But I was a goddess, and we were of a height. I need your cloak, I said to him, and your tunic at once. His eyes narrowed. I could see the reflexive no in them. I would come to know this type of man, jealous of his little power, to whom I was only a woman. Why, he said because I do not desire the death of your comrades. Do you feel otherwise? The words carried up the deck, and thirty-seven pairs of eyes looked up. He stripped off his clothes and handed them to me. They were the finest on board, extravagant white-combed wool edged with deep purple, sweeping the deck. Daedalus had come to stand by me. May I help? I gave him the cloak to hold up. Behind it, I disrobed and drew on the tunic. The armholes gaped and the waist billowed. The smell of sour human flesh enveloped me. Will you help me with the cloak? Daedalus draped it around me, fastening it by its golden octopus pin. The cloth hung heavy as blankets, loose and slipping from my shoulders. I'm sorry to say, you don't look much of a man. I'm not meant to look like a man, I said. I'm meant to look like my brother. Scylla loved him once. Perhaps she still does. I touched the paste I had prepared to my lips, hyacinth and honey, ash flowers and aconite crushed with the bark of walnuts. I had cast illusions on animals and plants before, but never upon myself, and I felt a sudden plunging doubt. I forced the thought away. Fear of failure was the worst thing for any spell. I focused instead on Percy's, his lounging, smug face, his puffy muscles and thick neck, his long-fingered, indolent hands. Each of these I summoned in turn, willing them into me. When I opened my eyes, Daedalus was staring. Put the steadiest men at the oars, I said to him. My voice had changed too. It was deep and swollen with divine hauteur. They must not stop for anything, no matter what. He nodded. He was holding a sword and I saw that the other men were similarly armed with spears and daggers and crude cudgels. No, I said. I raised my voice for the whole ship. She is immortal. Weapons are useless, and you will need free hands to keep the ship moving forward. At once came the rasp of blades being sheathed, the thunk of spears set down. Even Polydemus, in his borrowed tunic, obeyed. I almost wanted to laugh, 
I had never been given such deference in my life. Is that what it was like to be Percy's? But already I could make out the faint outline of the straits on the horizon. I turned to Daedalus. Listen, I said. There is a chance that the spell will not fool her and she will know me. If she does, be sure you are not standing near. Be sure none of the men are. The mist came first. It closed in, wet and heavy, obscuring the cliffs, then the sky itself. We could see little, and the sound of the sucking whirlpool filled our ears. That whirlpool was, of course, the reason Scylla had chosen these streets. To avoid its pull, ships must steer close to the opposite cliff. It brought them right beneath her teeth. We pushed on through the thick air. As we entered the straits, the sound grew hollowed, echoing off the stone walls. My skin, the deck, the rail, every surface was slick with spray. The water foamed and an oar scraped the rock face. A small sound, but the men flinched as if it were a thunderclap. Above us, buried in the fog, was the cave and Scylla. We moved, I thought we did, but in such grayness it was impossible to tell how far or fast. The oarsmen were trembling with effort and fear, and the oarlocks creaked despite their oil. I counted the moments. Surely we were beneath her now. She would be creeping to the cave's opening and smelling out the plumpest. The sweat was drenching the men's tunics, their shoulders hunched. Those not rowing crouched behind coils of rope, the mast base, any cover they could find. I strained my eyes upwards, and she came. She was gray as the air as the cliff itself. I had always imagined she would look like something, a snake or an octopus, a shark. But the truth of her was overwhelming, an immensity that my mind fought to take in. Her necks were longer than ship masts. Her six heads gaped, hideously lumpen like melted lava stone. Black tongues licked her sword-length teeth. Her eyes were fixed on the men, oblivious in their sweating fear. She crept closer, slipping over the rocks. A reptilian stench struck me, foul as squirming nests underground. Her necks wove a little in the air, and from one of her mouths I saw a gleaming strand of saliva stretch and fall. Her body was not visible. It was hidden back in the mist with her legs, those hideous boneless things that Zellini had spoken of so long ago. Hermes had told me how they clung inside her cave like the curled ends of hermit crabs when she lowered herself to feed. Her necks had begun to ripple and bunch back on themselves. She was gathering to strike. Scylla, I cried with my god's voice. She screamed. The sound was a piercing chaos like a thousand dogs howling at once. Some of the rowers dropped their oars to cover their ears. At the edge of my vision, I saw Daedalus push one to the side and take his place. I could not worry for him now. Scylla, I cried again. It is Percy's, I have sailed a year to find you. She stared at me, her eyes dead holes in gray flesh. From one of her throats came a strangled sound. She had no vocal cords anymore. My bitch sister is exiled for what she did to you, I said. But she deserved worse. What vengeance do you desire? Tell me, Persephone and I will do it. I was making myself speak slowly. Each moment was another beat of the oars. Those twelve eyes pinned me. I could see the stains of old blood around her mouth, the shreds of flesh still hanging from her teeth. 
I felt my gorge rise. We have been searching out a cure for you, a powerful drug to turn you back. We miss you as you were. My brother would never have talked so, but it did not seem to matter. She was listening, coiling and uncoiling along the rocks, keeping pace with our ship. How many oar strokes had passed? A dozen? A hundred? I could see her dull mind working. A god? What does a god do here? Scylla, I said. Will you have it? Will you have our cure? She hissed. The breath from her gullet was rotten and hot as fire. But already, I had lost her attention. Two of her heads had turned to watch the men at their oars. The others were beginning to follow. I saw her necks bunch again. Look, I cried. Here it is. I lifted the open bottle in the air. Only one neck turned back to see, but that was enough. I hefted the draft and threw it. It hit her in the back of her teeth, and I watched her throat ripple as she swallowed. I spoke the spell to change her back. For a moment, nothing happened. Then she shrieked, a sound to crack open the world. Her heads whipped, and she dived towards me. I had time only to grab hold of the mast. Run, I thought at Daedalus. She struck the ship's stern. The deck popped like driftwood, and a length of rail tore away. Splinters flew. Men were tumbling around me, and I would have fallen if I had not been gripping the mast. I heard Daedalus crying orders, but could not see him. Already her adenex were rearing back again, and this time I knew she would not miss. She would strike the deck itself, crack the ship in half, then pluck us from the water one by one. But the blow did not come. Her head smacked into the waves behind us. She jerked, lunging against the water, snapping those huge jaws like a dog fighting its leash. It took my muddy brain a moment to understand. She had reached the end of her tether. Her legs could stretch no farther from their hold in her cave. We were past. She seemed to realize it at the same time I did. She screamed in rage, slamming our wake with her heads, throwing up huge waves. The boat tipped, gulping sea over its low sides and back. Men grappled at the ropes, their legs trailing in the water, but they held on, and each moment we were further away. She beat the cliffside, howling her frustration, until the mist closed over her, and she was gone. I leaned my forehead against the mast. The clothes were slipping off my shoulders, the cloak dragged at my neck, and my skin prickled with heat. The spell had ended. I was myself again. Goddess. Daedalus was kneeling. The other men were ranged on their knees behind, their faces thick and haggard, scarred and bearded and burnt were gray and shaken. They bore scrapes and lumps from being thrown across the deck. I scarcely saw them. Before me was Scylla, her ravening mouths and those dead, empty eyes. She had not known me, I thought, not as Percy's or anything. Only the novelty of my being a god had momentarily checked her. Her mind was gone. Lady, Daedalus said, we will make sacrifice to you every day of our lives for this. You have saved us. You brought us through the straits alive. The men echoed him, murmuring prayers, their great hands lifted like platters. A few pressed their foreheads to the deck, in the Eastern style. Such worship was the payment my kind demanded for services rendered.
The bile rose in my throat. You fools, I said. I am the one who made that creature. I did it for pride and vain delusion, and you thank me? Twelve of your men are dead for it, and how many thousands more to come? That drug I gave her is the strongest I have. Do you understand, mortals? The words seared the air, the light from my eyes beat down upon them. I will never be free of her. She cannot be changed back, not now, not ever. What she is, she will remain. She will feast on your kind for all eternity. So get up, get up and get to your oars and let me not hear you speak of your imbecile gratitude or I will make you sorry for it. They cringed and shook like the weak vessels they were, stuttering to their feet and creeping away. Above, the sky was cloudless and the heat pinned the air to the deck. I yanked off the cloak. I wanted the sun to burn me. I wanted it to scorch me down to bone.